Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery Podcast, a place where we explore the world of horror in film, television, books, and popular culture. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Bruce Markison, and as always, I'm joined by our producer and co-host, Tracy Asteria. Tracy, as always, welcome to the program. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Bruce. I'm super excited about welcoming our guest tonight. Yeah, I'm excited not only for that, but it's also a milestone episode for us. It's our 25th episode. Who would have thought we'd get this far? In oh, about half a year, we've been doing this for about six months. So 25 episodes. That's a nice round number. And uh, it's especially great that we have with us one of the best authors and historians on the subject of horror. His name is Gregory Mank. Greg has written numerous books, including, well, the first book that I read from his collection, uh, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, The Expanded Story of a Haunting Collaboration. Uh, I've also um, delved into some of his other books as well, including his excellent bio of Colin Clive, that is One Man Crazy, The Life and Death of Colin Clive, Hollywood's Dr. Frankenstein. There have been other books that Greg has written as well. It's Alive, the classic cinema saga of Frankenstein, Laird Cragar, a Hollywood tragedy. Uh, his most recent nonfiction book, Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us, More Dark Alleys of Classic Horror Cinema. And also, Greg has been delving into some, some novels, some historical fiction. We'll talk about those later on. One of them is called Frankenstein's Witch. The other is Platinum Widow, Who Killed Jean Harlow's Husband? Uh, Greg has written and recorded many DVD and Blu-ray audio commentaries, and he has also won four Rondo Awards for his writing about horror, and that is certainly a testament to his ability. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Bruce. I'm very happy to be here. And Tracy, thank you. Nice to be with both of you. I'm going to let Tracy start things off. Tracy's going to begin the grilling with a question about <laughs> your early days. Exactly. So one of the biggest questions that we like to find out from, you know, our guests when they come on is just to share how this journey began for you. Um, you know, what inspired your inspiration with horror, monsters in the world of mystery and the macabre? Like, tell us your story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I go way back. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you up front, I'm 73 years old. When I was six years old, Back in 1957, all right, the original Shock Theater package uh, came on television, came to Baltimore. And for the first time, the old, the old Universal horror films were, were being telecast. Ooh. And uh, they came to Baltimore. And this was uh, even before the first one appeared, the first one, of course, being Frankenstein. They were a sensation. I mean, they showed the trailer for Frankenstein throughout the week. They showed the scene of of the monster in Little Maria, where he throws her into the lake. You know, the kids on the school bus were just, you know, going crazy about, you know, what, what they were going to show Saturday night. Well, one of the interesting things was that they were going to show it Saturday night, but it didn't come on until 11.15 p.m., right? It had been gauged for adult viewing. And I was six years old. So I went to my parents and begged all week long, could I please stay up until 11.15 Saturday night to see Frankenstein? And I think they were both, eventually, I think they both were so amused that I would be interested in something like this, that they agreed to sit up and watch it with me. And they said, all right, all right, we'll sit up and we'll all watch it together. 
next day Sunday. So, you know, you, you don't have to go to school and you can, you know, recover. Uh, so um, I stayed up and um, the show came on and it had not been on for, I don't think, seven or eight seconds. And I said, I don't want to watch it. And I, oh. <laughs> I folded it. And ran up to bed. Uh, that was the end of that. All right. So, <laughs> well, about two weeks later, I couldn't forgive myself. I, I, I said, uh, they were going to have another Frankenstein film on Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And so once again, can I please stay up and watch it? Can I please stay up and watch it? I think my parents at that point that, well, he'll never, he'll never, he'll never make it. But uh, my dad sat with me and he watched Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And I, I remember feeling kind of so-so about that one at the time. I love it now, but at the time it kind of went over, someone guess it went over my head. But the film that really did it, which was maybe about several months later, actually, was Son of Frankenstein. And the characters that really did it were, of course, Carlos Monster and Lugosi's Igor. And watching them at the time, I can remember all back then, it was like watching a couple of kids. It was like watching a couple of children. They seemed almost childlike. You know, I mean, they were they were friends. Nobody liked them. They were outcasts. You know, they felt rejected like children sometimes feel. All these things. And I just thought they were wonderful. And I, I can actually remember to this day uh, that at uh, near the end, after Lugosi is killed and, and Carlos Monster finds him and bends down over him and looks at him and realizes that he's dead and he throws his head back and he gives this scream. I remember mm. sitting there on the living room floor and getting all misty eyed. I mean, I just felt really, really bad uh, for both of them uh, for, you know, for what had happened. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm hooked. I'm absolutely hooked. Uh, this stuff is great. And um, so I saw some more. And then, of course, the, uh, the, 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 it went off the air in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was on in Washington, like at one or two o'clock in the morning. And we could hardly, you know, those were the days obviously long before cable. And uh, the only way you were going to see it was to have an antenna on your roof to bring it in on a, on a properly night when everything was aligned for this to happen. Um, and so I didn't see very many for a long time, but then eventually, you know, did, did start to catch up. And I was amazed that the, um, the, the bond there hadn't broken, that I was still fascinated. That, that they were still great, that, that I still wanted to know about them. And with, with me, something that, that hit early on with that movie was the fact that I, would, I, I not only were, you know, were the characters cool, not only was the monster fascinating and Igor fascinating, but Karloff and Lugosi were fascinating. It was like, I wonder what these men are really like. I'm thinking of this at the age of six. Okay. I, I wonder what they're really like. I wonder what happens when they walk down the street and people recognize them. Do people boo them? Do people throw things at them? Do people run away from them? Um, I mean, what is it like to be a horror star? What is what, what do they have to go through um, you know, to make a living doing this? Um, at that point, Lugosi had died. He had died uh, the year before. Uh, but uh, Karloff was still alive and he was still very, very busy. And doing a lot of television work and so on and so forth, and um, so that 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 hit that just absolutely grabbed me and uh, didn't let go, and uh, it's here it is um, all these years later. That was 1957, and <laughs> here we are in 2024, and here I am talking to you, great people tonight about the same the same topic. So um, yeah, wow. an addict. <laughs> I guess that's the oh my topic. goodness. Oh, that's amazing. At the age of six, it's, that's it just was something about them that I could relate to as a as a kid. You know, it just was something there, just something there. And um, and, and it stayed. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so that's uh, that that's what it was all about. 
Oh, I love it. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Oh, no, you're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so, Greg, your parents were really lenient. And this is 1950s. This is a time when probably not many parents, if you were to take a survey of parents in the mid-1950s, I don't know that many would have been all that willing for their son to, uh, <laughs> at six years of age, watch some of these frightening movies. But your parents were a little different. Well, they yes and no. They they I think they thought it was something that was going to blaze out very quickly. I do remember about the same time, maybe a few months later, uh, that the three of us, my mom, my dad, and me, watched uh, the the Spencer Tracy, Doctor Jekyll, and Mister Hyde. That was also on a Saturday night and was actually on in competition with Shock Theater on a different channel. And uh, I think in that case. Uh, they figured this would be all right because, after all, Spencer Tracy was in it, and Ingrid Bergman was in it, and you know these were big legit talents. These weren't people. Not that it was that anything was wrong personally with Karloff and Lugosi, but these weren't people who made their living scaring you know people. These were great stars. So, so you know if they did it. It must be a good movie. And I remember watching it, and it's funny because if as as, as I'm sure you are being familiar with that movie. Um, you know, there's a lot of really wild stuff in that 41 film, uh, you know, a lot of, of, uh, of, of sexual play, uh, masochism and, and all kinds of things that they dared to get into in that film. And I'm actually surprised my parents, uh, made it through to the end of that one with me. I would have thought that <laughs> once, once Spencer Tracy started, you know, chewing on grapes and spitting them into, uh, Ingrid Bergman's face like he did in the movie. And they would have said, okay, that's it. Time to go to bed. But um, we made it to the end. And, um, but no. And I think as I got older, um, in fact, I remember at one point, um, God bless them. They were wonderful parents and they very rarely got, they, I got away with murder and they, they very rarely disciplined me as they should have. But at one point I did something wrong. I remember one night and, I, and I, they sent me to bed and I heard my mother in the living room saying to my father, you know, Greg was always a very good boy until we let him start watching those horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't think they trusted them very much. I think they 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 were they wanted to make me happy and let me watch them. But I think if they had had yeah. their choice, they would have said, no, watch something else. <laughs> that 1941 Jekyll and Hyde movie, we're going to get more into that because you discussed that in your Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us book. Yes. But mm -hmm. I want... I want to talk about the first book of yours that I read, and that was your volume on Karloff and Lugosi, which I loved and really kind of made me a fan of you right from the start. Thank you. You talk about their relationship, the eight films that they worked on together. You know, for years, I had heard stories that when they first collaborated, 1935 and the Black Cat, they hated each other. And this spawned <laughs> an incredible rivalry. Not really the true story, is it? No. They First of all, they were both very, very much, uh, you know, European gentlemen. Uh, they were, they were, they were very much, uh, uh, they would, they, I doubt if there was ever a crossword between Carla and Lugosi and the eight films they made together. They, if, if they, they might've possibly, one of them did something that ired up the other one, but um, I would imagine they, if they did, they wouldn't have said anything and that they, they were, um, you know, they were perfect gentlemen, and that was the way they worked. They were always gentlemen with everybody that they worked with. That was part of part of their professionalism, was the fact that they weren't prima donnas and they weren't temper tantrum throwers and they weren't, you know, these kind of actors. Um, I, I think Lugosi put it on a little bit sometimes because it fit his character that he was kind of, you know, imperious and withdrawn and these kind of things. But he was actually a very, very warm man. 
and um, and very very emotional. And um, so I think that um, I, I think that uh, the 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 only real problem that came up over the years was maybe in their first film there's a little bit of uneasiness because I think that uh, uh, Karloff picked up the fact that Lugosi was a little suspicious that he thought that, you know, after Karloff had the big universal contract and that they were going to throw him the film, they would throw Karloff the film, and that, uh, uh, you know, they would play tricks on Lugosi and they, he, would, he would either stage him and he would do these kind of things. And so, and of course, Lugosi had worked with actors like that. So he, it wasn't that it was that, that was an unusual thing to happen. You know, I mean, you would work with someone who would, would behave that way. Um, and Karloff didn't. And Karloff said later when he realizes he put it, I didn't go in for that kind of nonsense. I didn't do that sort of thing. Uh, then we became friendly. Um, were they, you know, great pals? No, because they had, as Karloff always said, they had very different tastes. So, you know, the, the example they always use is that Karloff loved cricket and Lugosi loved soccer. But uh, they also had a lot of things in common that, you know, brought them together. They were both member, uh, founding members of the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, uh, they were both uh, passionate about their work. They just both just, just loved acting. Um, when they first met, they had both been married about four times. Uh, so I don't know if that would necessarily been a, <laughs> a bond wow. that would have brought them together, but I mean, they could have sat down one day and said, Oh, let me tell you about the third one. I had, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> something, uh, or, you know, something of that nature. Uh, and it could have related on that score. So there were all kinds of things that they could have related on. They perhaps didn't get as close as they might have or should have, uh, for, for whatever variety of reasons. But um, uh, Karloff was very British. Lugosi was very Hungarian. Uh, you know, Karloff had all his British friends who played cricket and, you know, had tea and and, and that sort of thing. And Lugosi had his Hungarian friends who did, you know, had such great love for their old country and they, they hung out together. So there wasn't too much of a, of a chance for them to get together. The place where things could get a little dicey was after... Lugosi died. And of course, sadly, tragically, heartbreakingly, it was a very sad end for Lugosi. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's certainly no disrespect intended when we say that he went through, he really went through hell at the end of his life. He went with the, with the alcoholism and with the drug addiction and with the, with the various other problems. And, and Karloff knew it. Um, and, and um, uh, when Lugosi died, a lot of the press interviewers over the years for, for years came to Karloff and said, you know, tell us about Beta Lugosi. You know, isn't it, a, isn't it a shame he died the way he did? Isn't it a shame he died in poverty? Isn't it a shame that he died poor? Isn't it a shame that he, this, that, and the other thing? And why did this happen? And what Karloff would generally say, and I think this was very diplomatic of him, um, and you, we could debate whether or not it was valid, he said, well, I don't think he ever really learned the English language as comfortably as he might have. And as a result, he was not quite entirely comfortable here um, as someone like Peter Lorre, who you know, knew the language extremely well and was very comfortable in Hollywood. All right. We did, he wasn't isolated, so to speak, among Hungarian uh, friends. Uh, and um, that uh, you know, if, if he had, if he had learned the language perhaps a little bit better, then I think that he would would have had an easier time of it. And a lot of people have jumped on Karloff for saying this, but I don't think he meant it at all unkindly. I don't think he meant it at all disrespectfully. It was sort of a catch-all, so he didn't have to go into the other things. Yeah, that's what I mean. 
he didn't have to say by talking about the fact, well, he never really got the language down too well. So that, that handicapped him. He didn't have to say, well, you know, you know, he also obviously I've, I've talked to people before who, who push on this about the Boris Karloff interview that never was. And that was somebody coming to Karloff and saying, you know, tell us about Beta Lugosi. And Karloff says, oh, isn't it a shame he drank? Oh, isn't it a shame that he had that drug addiction? Wasn't it a shame that he was buried in his Dracula cave? Wasn't it a shame that he made films for Ed Wood? But was, you know, and, and did it, did it, did it, did it. And Karloff never said a single one of those things. I mean, as far as we know, he, I mean, he must have known, but he, as far as we know, he, he didn't even, never knew Lugosi had a drug problem because he never, ever, ever mentioned it. Uh, or drinking problem because he never, ever, ever mentioned it. The only thing he would admit to was he had a slight dialogue problem, a slight English language problem. Um, and by that way, he was able to be honest and saying, well, he couldn't be, you know, he couldn't just be a Pollyanna and said, oh, I didn't know Bela had any problems. I always thought he was doing great. I, I mean, like, what do you mean he had problems? He had to acknowledge the man had problems because everybody knew that. Everybody knew he had, you know, had a, a sad end. But at the same time, um, he, so he could acknowledge that without having to get into the, 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 the more grim aspects of things with Lugosi. And I think yeah. that, that's what served him. Yeah. Greg, I'm curious of the eight collaborations they did, uh, which is your favorite? Son of Frankenstein, which you mentioned, or The Black Cat, The Raven, The Body Snatcher, or something else? <laughs> I think The Black Cat. I think the black cat. I think the black cat is just is, is sensational to watch the two of them together. I, I think the body snatcher is a wonderful movie, and I love Son of Frankenstein because it really, as I was saying, you know, really set me on the path uh, with with my uh, you know with my affection for these men. Uh, so I'd like different ones for different reasons. But as far as just the uh, as a film goes, I would say um, I would say the black cat is 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 just delirious. Um, and the two of them are delirious in it. Uh, so I think I, I love watching that. And I would, I would, uh, I'd, I'd throw something else in here regarding, uh, the Karloff Lugosi relationship. And that is that, um, and, and it's, it's always kind of moving for me to tell this story, but I, I think it's important. And that is that I, I knew an actress in Britain at one point who, um, whose family had some Hungarian ties. And when she grew up, she, her family, uh, had been, you know, she heard stories from her family that they had, they'd been related to Beta Lugosi and they adored him. They just thought he was magnificent and they talked about him with great love and great affection and everything. And they told this little girl about her uncle Bela, you know, basically. And what a shame that, you know, he wasn't around anymore, that, that he had died and that she wasn't going to get to know him. And um, she grew up with this hero worship for Beta Lugosi, although she had, again, had not ever met him only heard what her relatives had said. And um, she sent away for a picture of him one point. You know, there was a, you know, there's some still catalog and it had, you know, Beta Lugosi and she, so she sent her dollar in or whatever and they sent her a picture. And she was again, very young. She probably was about eight, eight years old. And so the picture came in the mail and she opened it up and it was a Dracula picture. And it scared the living daylights out of her. You know, I mean, she thought this is this is Bela. You know, this is Miss, this is Uncle Bela that they talk about. And looking at me was that that shot from Dracula. She, she remembered that he where he's like standing behind a tree and kind of looking around the tree. And and she oh, she just could not make peace with the fact that this was, you know, Uncle Bela that her family talked about. So by an incredible coincidence, who do you think lived right across the square in London from her, but Boris Karloff? Mm. 
And wow. she, she knew, she had heard them talk about the fact that, that, uh, that Bela had made, of course, of course, all these films with Karloff. And she felt this, this urge to have to talk to Karloff about this picture. You know, she thought she's, maybe he can explain mm -hmm. it to me, you know, and it's like, I, 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 so she went over to see him and he, he was very, very, uh, really quite old at that point. And, and, um, you know, he was having the problems that we later read about. He had trouble breathing and trouble, you know, with having an oxygen nearby and, and was in really, really quite frail shape. But she went in and she said, Mr. Karloff, can I please speak to you? And he said, yes, love. What is it? And she, he said, she said, and she told him the story. I sent her a picture of my Uncle Bela and it came and it scares me. And uh, so... But Carlos said, well, you, you come over here and sit next to me and show me that picture. So she went over and sat next to Carloff and looked at the pic and, and, and uh, took the picture out and showed it to him. And um, he said, well, of course, you have to imagine, first of all, love, that this man was a very fine actor and he's playing a role. He's just making pretend. He's just playing a role. And uh, so I can tell you, I made a number of films with him and he was he was he dearly loved children. He absolutely loved children. He would love to be able to be with you today because he loved children. And um, he was a dear, sweet man. He was very kind. He was a great gentleman. Uh, he was very intelligent. He was a great actor. And you can be very, very proud that your family was related to him. Hmm. And she looked up at Karloff and she said, Mr. Lugosi is in heaven now. <laughs> And Carl looked at her and said, yes, love, that's right. That's right. Aww. And um, and so I think that that uh, I, I think that kind of sums them up. Uh, you know, it, it just kind of sums them up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great story. Thank you. One follow up on the, the films and the Black Cat is a great selection for you that you made because they're really kind of on equal footing. Yes. They're both prominent in the film, whereas in The Body Snatcher, as great as it is, Lugosi's role is pretty small. Oh, yeah. Uh, but in, in The Black Cat, they're both on screen uh, about the same amount. They're on screen together. Lugosi's actually the, the nicer guy of the two because Karloff is pretty much 100 percent evil. Uh, sometimes there wasn't that balance in those films, but The Black Cat had it. It did. It did. It's it's almost it's almost like somebody you know took out a slide rule or something and, and measured exactly who was going to get how much footage in the film and and that it would be all even and everything would be laid out perfectly and that you know nobody could walk away and say somebody was slighted in favor of the other actor. Um, and the other thing that that uh, that uh, you notice what, why, that I I I've noticed watching it constantly is the fact that neither actor and I know a lot of people would probably argue with this, but I don't think either actor makes any effort to uh, upstage, overshadow anything. The other actor, they're they're a perfect duet. Um, they they they, you know, there's no, no nobody's hogging the screen, nobody's overacting. Um, they're both completely in character, and um, you know, this is this this is this marvelous marvelous uh, chemistry going on between the two of them, and and neither one is. Uh, is you know fighting for dominance uh, yeah. uh they're they're letting they're letting the the story roll along in its own sick crazy way and uh and they're just the, they're 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 you know to propel it and um 
Yeah, they're great. They're they're you know it's it's great professional uh, Hollywood acting, any kind of acting. Greg, let's talk about another iconic actor whose career ended up being much shorter than Karloff and Lugosi, and that's Colin Clive. You did a full-length biography on him. What motivated you to really want to delve in depth on Clive? Because he has been forgotten by a lot of people. He has. He died in 1937, so he's been gone a very long time. And um, he, uh, he was... I think seeing him in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, there's almost an inevitable wonder is, is this man is in much pain for real as he appears to be on the screen, you know, uh, or was he able to turn it on and off? Uh, unfortunately, in the, fa- in the in the situation with Clive, he was probably in worse pain in real life than he was on the screen. Uh, t- talk about a life being a, 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 you know, a real life horror movie that a man is trapped in. That was Colin Clive's life. And there were a lot of things about it that we did not know until... Um, until we got into the book, um, and that some some very startling things, and um, including the fact that there was a problem in his family at the time, uh, based on all the research that we found, with um, uh, mental illness, severe mental illness. Uh, he had a uh, a mother who abandoned him, and his two sisters, and uh, and her husband, uh, when Colin Clyde would have been about twelve years old. And uh, which is not that unusual necessarily uh, today, you know, a wife leaving her husband. But this was, you know, again, this was back around 1912 and in Victorian England and um, and, and what would have passed as Victorian England. And, um, you know, women, uh, to use the the, the cliche, women did not behave like that. Women of the upper class, I mean, they would they would not have. Uh, have done something like that. They wouldn't have just suddenly, you know, taken up with another man, moved in with him, and then gotten on a on a ship with him and taken off to another country and left her family behind. All right. So uh, today, people would have made peace with that, perhaps. But um, although it would have still been painful, but in his time, uh, it must have been a terrible, terrible uh, blow to him and to his sisters and to his to his father. Uh, he also had an uncle who was in um, uh, an asylum on the island of Jersey. And we were able, by uh, great fortitude and, and luck and resourcefulness on, on uh, some of my fellow researchers' parts, uh, that we were able to get the papers from back at that time. And there was the man's name. And um, next to his name in the list of, you know, of the reasons that he was there, it, had the, it was kind of frightening. It had the word lunatic. Uh, wow. his name, lunatic. Uh, so, uh, Clive grew up knowing about this and in those days, I mean, it's at it, it, no time is it a comfortable feeling for, for a family member to learn this, but in those days, in the, in the early part of that century, uh, it was, it was a terrifying curse on a family to be in a family in which somebody was actually medically designated to be mentally ill, uh, uh severely mentally ill to the point that, uh, they would be incarcerated in an asylum. Or, uh, and along with that, that they would have uh, a mother who behaved in, if you will, of such a, a lascivious uh, way at the time, uh, that she would just ditch her family and take off. And uh, from what we found, apparently, this was not the first time she ditched, you know, I mean, she, she eventually ditched that man and went with another one and so on. And so I guess this, you know, that that he grew up frightened of what he was going to become. And um it's very, uh, it's a very, very sad thing to see. And so uh, 
it wasn't really um, an act seeing him in the movies and seeing the kind of pain he went through. And so he became very, very, uh, uh, very obsessed with that. And he was from a young age, a, a very severe alcoholic. And um, it's rather ironic. He received, achieved fame in London on the stage in a play called Journey's End, in which he played a, uh, a captain who was afraid of, of you know, who, who uh, coped with his fears during the war by uh, drinking. And he basically became an actor who coped with his fears also by drinking. Um, and so it was, um, he sort of, you know, the role that made him famous, this was pre-Frankenstein, uh, was sort of the role he played for real, uh, is sort of who he was. Hmm. So he died very young, much, much too young. And there's a picture he made, I'll just mention this, called History is Made at Night, in which he plays uh, a jealous husband. And... Um, it's very near the end of his life, and it's just painful watching. I mean, he's he's like falling apart on the screen. And um, there's a uh, there's a, a story about there's a scene where he, she has with Gene Arthur uh, as his wife, and um, they said that you know they had a terrible time filming it because something about the scene really upset him, and he just kept breaking down and sobbing while he was trying to play it, and they had to keep doing retakes after retakes to get him to get the part, uh, get get the scene completed and to get the part finished. So um, very, very sad man. Apparently a very, 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 you know, wonderful man in some ways. He was, he was very nice. He, it's, it's interesting how many Cullen Clive autographs are out there, for example. I mean, he apparently he never said no to an autograph hunter. You know, you can go to almost any British, uh, you know, autograph seller and say, you know, I, I want a Cullen Clive autograph and they've got them all over the place. You know, even though he's been gone all these years, uh, he signed everything. He signed pictures, he signed papers, he signed menus. He, he, he was apparently a real gentleman and he loved horses and he loved animals and he loved dogs. And he was, a you know, he was a very great, great guy, but it just had, he had this terrible, terrible curse on him that yeah. passed on him. Yeah. So it was a very painful book to write. Uh, and and really, uh, it was quite. Um, I, I I almost felt when it was over that I you know needed a couple of months to recover uh, from yeah. it because it just really kind of got under my skin. Greg, you did a great talk about Clive at the 2018 Monster Bash convention, and as I recall, you talked about him as someone who got incredibly nervous about performing on set, stage fright. Yes, I guess he never really recovered from that, did he? He did not. And in a way, he was really in the wrong profession because, I mean, most most actors get a certain degree of stage fright, although it's not so much that they're afraid of the audience as it is they're just kind of afraid of themselves that they won't do a good job that night or they'll make a mistake or they'll do something that, you know, they'll be kicking themselves about when they go home that night. Uh, but in his case, he really was. He, he was he was extreme. He, he was he was not an egotist by any stretch of the imagination. And so the idea of going out in front of all these people every night on stage and or, or in front of a film crew uh, uh just terrorized him. And, um, you know, if ever a man again was in the wrong profession, uh, it was Colin Clive. He would have been, uh, he would have, there were a number of professions that would have suited him very well. He would have been, uh, and I mean this with, with highest respect, he would have been a marvelous farmer. He loved to, you know, he loved to grow things. He loved to plant things. He loved, uh, he loved flowers. He loved, um, uh, all these sorts of things. He could have, if he had a place in the British countryside where he could have done all those things, he probably could have somehow adjusted better to life. Um, but he was, he was in a profession that just was burning him up. And the incredible thing was he was so good at it. 
that that uh, nobody would have ever known. I mean, he just was. That was the thing that it, they they couldn't let him go. He couldn't let himself go from it because he was he was doing so well and making so much money and, and so impressive and and everything that um, you know it was like I can't give this up. I'm obviously people want to see me do this, so I'll keep doing it. But it it burned him up very very fast. In 2019, Greg delivered another wonderful talk, this time about another actor who had a tragic fate, Laird Craigar. Tracy, uh, I wish you could have been there uh, because Greg kept this capacity crowd at the Monster Bash convention in place for a solid hour and 15 minutes. I mean, people were just captivated, including me. And I had really never even heard of Laird Craigar, and I learned so much that day. He made two outstanding films in the 1940s, The Lodger and Hangover Square. And in The Lodger, Greg, you said that Craigar put forth, quote, a breathtaking performance, gentle at first, but a rampaging monster, end quote, by the end. One of the best performances you've ever seen, right, in Hollywood? Oh, yeah, as Jack the Ripper. Yeah, and and, and that, that's another childhood memory of, 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 of sorts. And that was that uh, uh, there was a kid, about about the same age as when I saw Shock Theater, uh, turning on the uh, television set. I remember it was a Sunday afternoon, and there was a, like the last five or ten minutes that the Lodger was on. And at, the, at that point, he's going crazy. He's, he's being pursued through the theater by Scotland Yard, and he's completely out of his mind. And he's running over a catwalk, and the shadows from under the catwalk are coming up and like rippling up and down over his body. And he looks like some, you know, horrible hybrid of zebra and and you know, human monster. And um, I remember again turning to my dad and saying, who's that? Who's that? He said, that's, uh, that's Larry Krigar. And I said, uh, I never heard of him. And he said, oh, he's been dead for many, many years. Um, and um, and he had, he had died in 1944. And, um, uh, but he did, uh, he did a handful of movies. And, but that one, uh, but the, the, the Lodger is his most famous one. And he just, he just absolutely blew the roof off the theaters when he in, in that in that performance. He was just absolutely he was he was incredible, he was mesmerizing, uh, and um, and loved it, absolutely loved it at that point. And within within the next year, he didn't love doing horror films anymore. He he wanted mm-hmm. to change his type, but uh, at that point, he just thought this is this is the greatest part of that anybody can have. Just think of this: you can start off with gentle and build it up, and build it up, and then go completely, you know, crazy wild by the end. And, um, uh, you know, and so but it is it's it's a it's a marvelous film. And uh, and and he's absolutely terrific in it. He really is. He's 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 one one scary dude in that movie. (laughs) Yeah. Then he makes Hangover Square, uh, which is a different role and he has Uh a different appearance as well. And then after he makes that movie, he checks himself into a hospital for hernia surgery. This is 1944. He would never leave the hospital. What exactly happened? Well, what happened was that he got very, 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 again, very sensitive man. He got very hypertense about where his career was going. He, again, he was passionate about acting, loved, loved it, loved the different performances. Uh, and But his big fear was being typecast. He didn't want to, never wanted to be typecast. He wanted to be able to play all kinds of mm-hmm. parts, eventually romantic parts. And this was a big challenge for him because at the time that he played Jack the Ripper in The Lodger, he had just come off a diet. He had lost 70 pounds and he was down to uh, about 260. All right. I mean, he started off at about 340. Right. So he was mm-hmm. he was tall. He was 6'3". 
but he weighed about 340 uh, at, at, his, at his biggest and heaviest. And so he was losing weight chunks at a time. And when Hangover Square came along, it was a very different story. There was a novel by Patrick Hamilton written Gaslight. And in it, uh, the, the, the character of, of, of George Harvey Bone, whom he plays, is, is a semi-romantic character. And um, uh, he was completely changed in the script. They wanted to make another Jack the Ripper movie, basically. So they transformed it. And Krigar thought to himself, uh-oh, they're going to have me play Jack the Ripper for the rest of my career. Every movie I make, they're going to make me some kind of, you know, hulking, you know, golem-esque monster mm-hmm. stalking the streets and scaring people and, you know, terrifying women and all these kind of things. And uh, he didn't want to do that. He got in a big fight with 20th Century Fox for his own contract of making the movie. He refused to make it. Uh, they, of course, came back with their lawyers and said, well, you have to make it or else. Um, it was a it was an incredible mess. And he finally went into it. He was very, very temperamental while making the film, which was different for him. Usually he was a lot of fun, very jolly, very friendly. Uh, fought with the director. Uh, was just uh, he just he just was miserable. And of course, part of the misery was caused by the fact that he was starving himself at that point. He just said, "Okay, I'll show them. I'll stop eating. I'll just stop eating. I'll get down to you know some you know some completely what for him would have been a very unrealistic weight, and I'll look completely different. I'll be and as the the saying went, he said, "I'm going to make myself a beautiful man. I'm going to turn myself into a beautiful man, and they won't even think about putting me in a role like this again because I'll be so beautiful." Uh, you know, and look so handsome, and it's all these needs to be so glamorous that they'll say, "Oh no, don't be, don't put him in another Jack Nicholson role." You know, he should be playing, you know, Cary Grant parts or something like that. So he went. He he had this hernia that had developed some years before, and uh, that he was planning to have surgery for that. And meanwhile, he had been dieting relentlessly, and um, he went in the hospital, and they performed the operation, and it turned out to be he had weakened his heart with all this dieting. And, um, and so he, um, he died and he was only 31 years old. Oh my gosh. That's so young. 31 years old. And, um, he just, uh, you know, it was just such an incredible, incredible waste. What a terrible, terrible loss uh, because he could have done so many things. He was so versatile and, 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 and you think about all the actors who, who were great actors and did all kinds of things who were heavyset actors like Charles Lawton, for example, and those kind of people. And, uh, you know, managed to make it work anyway. Uh, but he, he was young and he was very, uh, he got to a point that he had become quite temperamental and quite upset and, and, and all these things. And, and it was, so it was very, very sad. He just ran himself into the, ran himself, uh, you know, right up to his death. Uh, with with his dieting. Greg, is it true that just before his passing, the studio put out lies about him to try to make him comply? They did. And it was a very, very ugly smear campaign. They put out a lot of lies about him. There was, he was part of his, uh, in reality, uh, he was a gay man. All right. But he was an extremely, uh, uh, non-blatant gay man. I mean, there were no blatant gay men in Hollywood really at that point in 1944. So, it, it, but he was, you know, he was very conservative about his image and, and, and certainly wasn't uh, flagrant or anything of that nature. Uh, but, 
but they put they leaked as as studios would do in those days they leaked stories that would not be picked up by the major papers but would be circulated nonetheless by rumors throughout Hollywood and then from Hollywood on from there and they told some horrible stories about him about uh, various things he was doing and and various sexual excesses he was involved in and and these sorts of things and it was sort of a it was sort of a gun to the head thing that if you you know, if you persist on defying this studio, if you desist on not doing what you, you know, persist on not doing what you're being told to do and not doing the films we want you to do and not uh, not cooperating with us. All right. You're going to get to a point that you're going to be considered such a such a monster in real life that you will never get a job. Horrible, horrible way for, uh, you know, for, for, for the way life went in Hollywood. But it was it was typical. And that was the way they ran. That was the way that that you know they had they ran things. That's what they, these studios had in many cases. They would have a uh, this uh, you know brain trust uh, that would put together these these horrific stories about about the stars, and so which would dare them to you know that they better by God comply with what they were expected yeah. to do, or they would be smeared, and they would never undo the damage. Fred, so, do you remember which studio? Twentieth Century Fox. did this. Twentieth Century Fox. And that was the studio of Daryl Zanuck. And Daryl Zanuck was a, a brilliant movie maker, but he was a real SOB in, in, in real life. He was an extremely despotic uh, 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 producer. And, um, and, you know, you just, you just didn't, you just didn't cross him. Um, uh, Richard Widmark was, was on contract to him at one point, for example, and Richard Widmark was offered a movie that he didn't want to do. And, it was not the first time he had agreed to do a movie he didn't want to do for them. So Woodmark sent back the script and said, no, on this time, no, I'm not going to do it. So he said, um, you know, his agent came over the next morning and said, I've got something for you. And he said, what? And the agent picked up the phone and called 20th Century Fox and handed it to him and said, here, you listen to yourself. And his voice said, hello, this is Daryl Zanuck. And did, am I getting the right information? You're refusing to do this picture. And Woodmark said, well, yeah, you know, I've done like three dogs for you at this point. I'm going to do another one. And, um, you know, he said, well, you miserable SOB, no good, blah, blah, blah. He said, I will ruin you personally. I will ruin you professionally. I will ruin you socially. You will not be able to show your face in this town if you don't do this picture. Uh, we will attack you on every single angle we can attack you on until nobody will hire you. Uh, and so he said, and they said to Woodmark, what did you do? He said, I did the picture. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> I didn't have a choice. I, I figured I can't stand up to that kind of, you know, insane, uh, you know, power uh, that, that these people had at the time. So um, so that's what Krigar ran into. And it was it was it was a terribly heartbreaking thing um, uh, for, for everybody involved. And uh, he's he's buried. At, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Forest Lawn in California um, and um, the big cemetery in Glendale. And, uh, you know, so many famous people are buried there, Gene Harlow and Clark Gable and all kinds of, Carol Lombard, all kinds of people. And anyway, when, when Krigar died, he was buried at Forest Lawn. And when, on one of my early trips to California, I decided I wanted to visit Laird Krigar's grave. And the reason was because it was very strange. I seemed to have a contact with him in this sense, in that, that he only made a few movies, but it's like every time something important came up in my life, a Laird Krigar movie came on television. There he was. All right. I turned on the television. There was Larry Krugar. So um, and I thought, isn't that weird? And and then eventually what happened was when I was 
very young and trying to get my foot in the door writing something, I wrote an article, a story about Laird Krigar, and it was picked up and it was published. And I thought, gee, Laird, thank you. You know, I mean, it seems like you're you know, kind of following me around. And it, I mean, I didn't, it was, it was a fanciful kind of thing. I didn't really swear by it, but I mean, it was, it was, it seemed coincidental that he was, that he, that uh, these things kind of happened with him in mind. At any rate, this was 1981. And we decided we were going to go to Forest Lawn and visit Laird Krigard's grave. And I wrote to him and asked if I could, you know, if they would give me the information where he was buried. And they sent back a letter and said, yeah, he's here, here, this spot, this so on and so forth. So we went over on December the 9th of 1981, which was significant because he died on December the 9th. Right. That was the date of his death. And I was a little reluctant to go because of the fact that, um, you know, I thought, well, maybe there'll be family there or friends or somebody else will be there. And, you know, the stranger will walk in and say, yeah, I'm a Laird Krugar fan. I just thought I'd come over to them, you know, visit, pay my respects. And they'd say, get out of here. Yeah. But no, there was nobody there. There was nobody in the entire cemetery. It was so strange. We got there late in the afternoon. The place is enormous. I mean, it's just this enormous cemetery. And you could look from, you know, all the way around and you couldn't see a soul. There was nobody visiting any graves. There was nobody anywhere, any place, you know, in the whole thing. So I went up to the booth, showed him my letter from the VP saying where Krigard was buried. She said, okay, you go up here to a section called Eventide, and you'll get out here and you'll walk up. And anyway, we couldn't find it. Then we came back and we finally eventually did find Eventide, and they had the sprinkling system on. And the spring, there was water everywhere, squirting all over the place. And so, you know, we, I got out of the car to love. So we're coming this far. I'm going to find it anyway. I got out of the car and started to walk and left the door open. And the car and the sprinkler system fell over and it locked and all the border was squirting into the front seat of the car. And I thought, oh, this is this is terrible. Uh, <laughs> what a what a wacky thing to do. So um, at any rate, at any rate, it got it got later and later. It was almost dark. And finally, we couldn't find it. I mean, there were just thousands of headstones all over the little flat headstones all over the place. And. Um, I, I say this was this was a bad idea. You know, we shouldn't have come here because we were not we're not going to find it, and it's getting dark, and we're, they're going to throw us out, and so on and so forth. Mm. And I, I said, I'll look over here one more time and look over there. And just then, my wife Barbara said, "Greg, it's here! It's here! I found it! I found it!" So I, you know, ran over to it. And there was the there was the grave, and it had his name, Samuel Laird Krigar, and his dates down there 1913 1944 then there was some grass growing up over top of the of the marker and barbara said is there writing underneath the the grass so i got down and pulled the grass out from you know from the grave to see what it was and it was a verse from the bible and the verse said it was from matthew it said i am with you always <laughs> wow and i thought Okay, Larry, you're with me always. I'm good. I'm good with that. You can uh, <laughs> hang around. Yeah, yeah. We we work together well so far. So uh, let's uh, let's let's keep this partnership going. So uh, so we've been uh, we we it was very uh, very mysterious and very uh, very very strange. And uh, we uh, yeah we left and went to a restaurant, and drank margaritas for like three hours. We couldn't get over it. Yeah. <laughs> for a while, that had me. Believing that this was the cemetery scene from Night of the Living Dead, yeah, the beginning of the film. <laughs> so, and your wife's name is Barbara, and of course Barbara. the character in that movie is Barbara as well. That's so right. uh, that just jumped into my head right That's there. That's right. <laughs> Greg, let's talk about your most recent 
nonfiction book, and it's got an interesting title, Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us. Yes. More Dark Alleys of Classic Horror Cinema. So let's right off the bat ask you to explain the title. Well, it's funny because I had finished the book on um, the books we talked about on Larry Krigar and on on, uh, Cullen Clive. And I decided I wanted to do something else. And I wanted to do something else. I've got the book right here beside me. And um, I decided that what would be a good idea with this particular book is to do something that didn't involve personalities. Because I was didn't want to get in any more, you know, personalities that were going to drain me and make me feel exhausted afterwards and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I was just write about some films. But then I realized something, and that was that films really do have their own personalities. They they're, they're, Films start off a certain way. They're going in a certain direction. And all of a sudden they get compromised. They get broken. They get changed. They get uh, they get warped. They Sometimes they get better than anyone expects. Sometimes they get a lot worse. Uh, sometimes they end up somebody else's creation than what you think, you know, what you were out to create in the first place. And something else comes along. Uh, well, uh, as it turned out, this book was pretty much not that much different because the films covered in it were the same sort of things. Uh, they were they were all films that started off with a certain goal. And then as they went along because of the studio, because of the of the. Uh, uh, censorship because of, of any number of things that came up, uh, they changed and they, uh, they, they, they took on a different vision. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago, Bruce, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, perfect example. All right. That thing went through vi- many visions of how they wanted that film to work and, and what Hyde was going to be like and what, you know, how the whole story was going to progress. And then they would, you know, they realized that, you know, the, the, uh, the Hayes office or Breen office was not going to accept that particular draft or, or uh, Louis B. Mayer didn't like it or uh, Spencer Tracy didn't like it or, you know, somebody else, you know, somebody else that couldn't work with it that way. And so it would change. Um, so, so there were a lot of films in it and there were, and most of the films are melodramas or horror films. Uh, the Rasputin and the Empress, which the three Barrymore's made in 1932, uh, Island of All Souls, which we could talk about a lot. Uh, about the island Dr. Moreau that she Wells wrote about the the movie with the Panther woman in it, you know, how that all came together. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the censorship troubles that Bride of Frankenstein faced. I mean, they had so many crazy ideas they wanted to put in that movie that again, the censorship person said, you know, no way, uh, that never happened. Um, the, the, uh, the incredible changes in the movie Mad Love, which, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with and, uh, Mad Love being, you know, the, the great Peter Rory and Colin Clive horror film, mm-hmm. and which, uh, you know, went through again, again, a lot of, lot of mutations before they finally decided on what they could get away with, um, and so on and so forth. And and um, there are also some chapters in it on people who went through changes in their lives. Uh, Aquanetta, who was the Paul of the Ape woman, um, even a chapter on Basil Rathbone, who was in many ways the most distinguished, you know, actor in movies in the 30s. But by the 1960s, right. I was making films like Hillbillies in a Haunted House and, and uh, you know, this crazy stuff just to kind of keep him, you know, keep food on the table. Um, it, it, it's, it, I think that if there's, a, if there's a point to that book is that, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's good to have a plan. But it, you also, if you want to keep your sanity, you have to realize that the plans have to change all the time. 
uh, you know, they're always mutating. They're always, uh, something's going to come along. It's going to push you into another area and uh, uh, to, to get to, to try to get the same thing. And sometimes it's an improvement um, and sometimes it is a disaster. So you touched a little bit um, on the Hayes Code. So for those of us who are not really familiar about that, can you just explain that to our listeners? Just sure. A bit, if you don't mind. I'd be happy to. The Hayes Code was, uh, was actually, uh, Will Hayes had been a postmaster general of the United States. And when films were getting supposedly out of hand, he put together a code. This was around 1930. As it turned out, nobody really enforced it because of the fact that the studios had so much power. They figured, well, we can make what we want to make and nobody's going to stop us. Um, and so what happened was that they came along with, um, in 1934, they set up a man named Joseph Breen, B-R-E-E-N. Joseph Breen became the new head of the of, of the censorship of the, the uh, Hayes office or sometimes called the Breen office. And what he did is he read every single script and then he would come back and say, this can be in the movie or this can't be in the movie. Now, an example of that would be, we talked a while ago about the Black Cat. Mm -hmm. All right, When they finished writing the script for the Black Cat <laughs> and they sent it to Joseph Breen, all right, Joseph Breen wrote back and Joseph Breen had 20 different points that said, these have to come out of the script. All right. You can't oh, my goodness. These 20 things, they all got to go. All right. Uh, particularly in that case of that film, uh, uh, it was the killing of a cat. You can't kill an animal on the screen. All right. And the other thing was you can't skin a man alive on the screen. All right. Which is what Lugosi does to Karloff in the climax. So, uh, but there are a lot of other, all kinds of other things as well. And, um, you know, that, that, that they couldn't do, uh, uh you know, the, the, the photographer in the beginning of the movie appears to be effeminate. Take this out. Uh, you know, th th those kind of things. And, and, uh, uh, all, all, many, many different things. And of course, how, how the women were dressed in certain scenes and, and, and anything that they thought was provocative went. Um, and so uh, when um, Bride of Frankenstein came along and as another example, and they decided that they were going to really, you know, create the greatest, you know, the wildest horror film ever made, you know, they fought with Breen right up to, you know, right up to the, the, the shooting of the, of the picture, right up, you know, all, all the way through. Um, it was, it's, it's funny that the first film, I think the first film that actually ran into Debreen was a picture that was directed by James Whale, who directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but it was not a horror film. It was a, it was a film called One More River. And it was about a divorce drama in which a woman had been raped by her estranged husband. And you can possibly guess who the actor was who played the rapist husband. It was Colin Clive. Right. Colin Clive played the part. So um, at any rate, that film had so much trouble with the with the uh, Breen office that the night they previewed it up in Santa Barbara, they were still making cuts in it, like in the car, you know, in a truck on the way up to, <laughs> way to Santa Barbara. And then they'd quick splice it together and all this. Uh, to put it to, and oh, you can't have this. And they would loop in dialogue. Uh, Lana Latwell was a lawyer in it. And, and every once in a while, he says a line that doesn't fit the rest of the movie because they took out the line he said and put in another line. And so the this film, the studios were absolutely at the mercy. Now, you might say, why'd they get away with it? All right. And it's kind of a controversial answer. And that was 
that the reason that they that it kind of went along like that was because Joseph Breen was Catholic. Actually, he was a former seminarian, right? He had actually studied for the priesthood. Most of the moguls in Hollywood, the heads of the studios, were Jewish. Mm-hmm. All right. So basically what they kept saying was that they were going to take one of the biggest industries in the United States and it was going to erupt into a holy war. It was, a, it was the saying they kept using, a holy war in which the Catholic Church was going to go after the film industry. And there would be a fight between the Catholics and the Jews about the, the, the entertainment product in the United States. So they, they tried very hard. And actually, you got to give Joseph Breen credit because Joseph Breen really, really worked hard, although some, some of the changes he made sound absolutely ridiculous. He worked very hard to try to avert that ever happening, and it didn't. All right, that we never had the holding war between the, the, the Jewish film industry and the Catholic Legion of Decency or the Catholic censorship board um and uh it it never came to pass and then eventually the censorship mellowed a little bit and mellowed more and more and more but um but that was their purpose their purpose was to make sure there was nothing in the movies that would be considered to be uh, a mortal sin because basically you know according to a lot of people who saw these films they felt that if you went to see a movie like one more river (laughs) you could go to hell that's what the Catholics were saying. You know, you, you you go see that movie and, you know, you better hope you don't get hit by a truck on the way home before you have a chance to go make confession because you could go to hell for having watched that movie. And um, it, so it was very, very controversial and a, and a real, real hell nest, uh, you know, for them to have to work for. And, of course, the horror films where you're dealing with, you know, blasphemy and sacrilege and man-made monsters and vampires from the dead and, and you know crucifixes being held up as weapons and and uh, you know all these many many other things that all had touches in in uh in there in in the in the in the whole realm of religion you know they were special targets for the censors yeah. because they were they were really asking for trouble yeah greg as a, a follow up on this was there a lot of material taken out of the 1941 version of jekyll and hyde there wasn't a whole lot taken out, but there was an awful lot that was changed that they never went with. Um, an example of, for example, the way Hyde appeared, um, there wasn't too much. But there is one thing, there were a lot of cuts that were made that nobody really understood um, at the time and today really don't understand um, the full reasons as to why they were taken out. Um there's all kinds of theories. For example, in the movie, if you watch the movie, Doc Jek- the, the 41 Jekyll and Hyde, probably Spencer Tracy's best scene is about three minutes from the end. He's, he's Dr. Jekyll at this point. All right. He's not Mr. Hyde. He looks in a mirror in his laboratory. He's afraid he's going to turn into Mr. Hyde, which he does. But before the transformation comes, he stands there, he looks in the, in the mirror and he cries. All right. He's weeping. He's, he's saying, you know, he's saying he's, he's sorry to God. He's, he's apologizing for what occurred. He, you know, he's sorry he went this far. He's sorry that he mixed, got himself mixed up with the human soul, so on and so forth. And, you know, I mean, Spencer Tracy didn't cry very much in movies. You know, he was kind of a strong, silent type. Um, but he's crying in this scene and it's very, very moving. And um, like I said, probably his best scene in the picture. And they cut it out. He just looks in the mirror and turns into Mr. Hyde. Um, 
they never really have explained that as to why they would why they would feel that that had to go. Um, I mean, like like I said, some theories as to why, but um, uh, you know, there was the always the worry to a certain extent that um, some of these guys in the movies would do really horrible things, and then thirty seconds before they died, they'd say, "I'm sorry, God. I'm really sorry. I I, I didn't mean it. Uh, please forgive me. I didn't. I'm sorry. I did it. Okay." And at which point they're forgiven and they're going to go to heaven. And it's like, you know, the movie doesn't want that to happen. They want the audience to think he's going to everlasting hell or having been, you know, having meddled in the human soul or whatever. So they <laughs> couldn't let him, let him forgive himself in the last minute, although occasionally people did. Um, but uh, no, they have in the, in the original script, they have a Mr. Hyde who's like a conehead and he's, and he's got, he says all kinds of horrible, you know, terrible things to, uh, uh, to, to, uh, the women. And, and he's, um, uh, you know, he's really, really horrific, uh, in, in that picture, uh, in, 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 in the script and, uh, uh, you know, recites verse and does, uh, you know, uh, a real nightmare. And then they, you know, thought, well, he's probably too much. Let's tune him back. Let's tune him back. Let's tune him back. And then of course, eventually they get to the Mr. Hyde who's in the movie, who's, you know, pretty nasty character, but he's not really horrifying. I mean, if you saw him on the street, you wouldn't say, oh, let me run the other way because this guy's obviously a monster. You would just say, gee, there's a kind of a toothy guy that looks a little bit like Spencer Tracy, you know, kind of, yeah. kind of thing. Look at those choppers. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, final question. You've branched out into a different area of writing the last couple of years. You have written uh, two novels. Uh, one of them is called Frankenstein's Witch, partly set during the filming of the 1931 version of Frankenstein. And you've also done another historical fiction piece called Platinum Widow, Who Killed Jean Harlow's Husband, which actually involves the real-life death of Harlow's husband, but you take some liberties with that. Tell us why you were motivated to get into these areas. I, I think it's fascinating. It was really, really fun to do. and and um, it. I figured that, you know, there is this, this genre now where people are taking, uh, you know, historic fiction, uh, you know, liberties with, with books. And, um, of course, in, in the case of the Frankenstein book, I've, I've, I've labored in those vineyards so long that, uh, you know, I feel like I know so many of the people so well. I feel like I know Colin Clive and I know Boris Karloff and I know all these people. And I thought that, you know, back 1931 was a pretty wild time in Hollywood. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the idea of witchcraft in Hollywood at the time was was, uh, you know, certainly a reality that there was all kinds of crazy things going on that were that, that, that didn't have a lid on them yet. And um, and so in that book, what happens is that the, the book is divided into actually two parts. The first part, which takes place um, in 1931 during the shooting of Frankenstein and how the the various very interesting real life people in it, uh, Colin Clive, James Whale, Boris Karloff, so on and so forth, um, get involved with this um, this uh, pagan, I guess you would, some people would call her, uh, blasphemer and another name, but, but basically she's a witch. She calls herself, uh, you know, uh, Frankenstein's witch and uh, who performs a black mass out at Malibu Lake and does all kinds of unspeakable things. And um and who eventually gets uh, personally involved with Colin Clive and causes all kinds of troubles. And then the second half of the book actually jumps to 1967 and the Summer of Love. And of course, a lot of those people are still alive. Carlos still alive in 1967, and and so on and so forth. And the uh, the imaginary protagonists uh, in the book are still alive. And 
so on and so forth. So that one, that one I had a lot of fun with. Uh, and um, as I did with the second one, which um, is, is very, very much based on the actual facts of the um, situation with the, the Gene Harlow uh, great unsolved mystery uh, of Hollywood, really, 1932, when her husband of 65 days uh, was suddenly found dead with a bullet in his brain. And they never have to this day really confirmed whether or not it was suicide or whether it was murder. There are a number of people who had excellent reasons in their mind uh, to have murdered him. Uh, he also had a number of excellent reasons in his own mind to have murdered himself. All right. He was a very unhappy man. Uh, and so there were both, you know, they both uh, in, in both cases. Uh, it was great to really kind of saturate yourself in all of the atmosphere back in those days of all that was happening, all the different addresses. Um, you know, I've been to many of the places that were that are described in both books. Um, I remember walking up the hill one day up to the, the house where where Paul Byrne, Gene Harlow's husband, uh, did uh, was found dead. And um, thinking at the time, I thought, oh, anybody could have shot him. I mean, the place was so obscure up in the hills, up at Benedict Canyon. I mean, you know, somebody could have driven up there in a tank and, you know, fired it into the house and nobody would have nobody would have would have noticed him coming you know because it's so obscure up there um uh that and of course in, with the frankenstein situation again there were there were so many things uh that uh you know different places i had visited and and and, and research i'd done and everything that could just i could just kind of pop right into the book so uh it, it's been a lot of fun to do and um you know a different take on all of this and uh and uh, it, it's, um, you know, I'm working on a third one now, so we'll see how that one goes. If it, if it uh, gets to completion, I'm on the fifth of a, the final fifth part. So hopefully it'll get there. <laughs> nice. Okay. Greg, what's the best place for people to buy those two books and also your Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us book as well? Probably the easiest way is, is to order them on Amazon. And also, if you're coming to Monster Bash, I always have the books there uh through the at the conventions so i'll be at the monster bash convention this summer and um I'll that's have, in july right it's in july that's right and i'll have both books uh uh all the books with me uh that, that we talked about tonight and um you know be very happy to uh talk about all this further with anybody who's there and you and our friend uh, Frank Delastrito will be doing a presentation on House of Frankenstein at Monster Bash. Want to mention that too? We sure will. Yes, I'll be honored to work with Frank. Frank's a great guy and a, and a, and a marvelous researcher and historian, and uh, and we have a lot of fun together. Yeah, Greg, we really appreciate your time. You've been very generous with it. Uh, best of luck with these uh, newer books that you've come out with, and the current book project that you're working on. We hope to see that published soon. Uh, Greg Mank, uh, one of the uh, best horror historians and authors that is out there. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Tracy. And you guys have a great day. <laughs> Again, our guest has been uh, the terrific writer and historian Gregory Mank. You can visit his website, gregorymank.com. My thanks to Greg and, of course, to my co-host, Tracy. We want to thank all of you for joining us in this Museum of the Macabre. And we hope you'll be with us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery.